as always, to be able to open God's word in your presence and for us together to sit under it and to aim to track with it and to see Christ in it. And so let's go to the Lord now and ask him for his help. We always do this because we're needy people and he's faithful to meet us in our need. And so we pray expectantly. Please join me. Our Father in heaven, you are the God who is gracious, who is merciful, who is patient, who is kind, who abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. Show yourself to be all of these things to us again today. As we come in need to look to your word, we pray that you would be with us, minister to us by your spirit so that we might track with your word. Give us grace that we might see you in your word, that we might see ourselves as we really are, and that most of all, we would see our Savior, and that we would trust him, that we would cast ourselves upon him. Give us that grace. Show us that favor this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I have a very brief introduction. And we are not going to be reading a text, so this is going to be really quick. So I hope that you're already geared up and ready to jump into Genesis 4 through the early portions of Genesis chapter 6. Just by way of reminder, the scriptures, whenever we come to them, whenever we read them, they should be understood, number one, holistically. By that I mean that we don't read or interpret the New Testament divorced from the Old Testament. We also do not read or interpret the Old Testament divorced from the New. The scriptures should also be read, number two, Christocentrically. It's a big word just meaning with Christ at the center. And so in other words, regardless of whether we are in Genesis or Revelation or anything in between, we should always be asking two questions of any passage. Where does this text stand in relation to Christ? And what does this have to do with Jesus. If we ask those two questions of any passage in the Bible, we will be on the right track to understanding it in the way that God would have us to, and to understanding it in a way that will strengthen and bolster our faith. So I have four points and a conclusion today. Some in the audience may be thinking, well, brothers, is that five points? That's fine. Four points and a conclusion. Number one, Cain and Abel. Number one, Cain and Abel. We're going to be looking at Genesis 4, Verses 1 through 16. You put your eyes on Genesis 4, 1. We read there that Eve conceives and gives birth to her first child, Adam and Eve's first child named Cain. Now it seems in reading this text, and this is going to show up again with Lamech when he fathers Noah, it's very clear that people early on had understood something of God's promise in Genesis 3, 15. Adam and Eve had been promised by God that one of their own offspring would come and undo the curse. It seems possible that Eve even thought Cain was that child, given how she describes him in verse 1. But then in verse 2, Cain's brother Abel is born to Adam and Eve. His name, Abel, means breath or vanity, which perhaps points to the brevity of his life. He will not live long. We learn in verse 2 as well that Abel was a shepherd and that Cain, a farmer. The line of Cain and the line of Abel are thus established. There are two children of Adam and Eve, two lines that will flow from their offspring, through their offspring. 
And this is going to be significant as we remember what the Lord said regarding enmity between the seed of the serpent on the one hand and the seed of the woman on the other. So just keep that in mind as we make our way through the entire book of Genesis, frankly, and even our text today. In verses 3 to 5, if you put your eyes in that section, Cain and Abel now, in the course of time, we're told, bring offerings. They bring sacrifices to the Lord. We read that God has regard for Abel and his offering, but God does not have regard for Cain and for his. Now, this is important. There is nothing in the text that would suggest that the substance of Cain's offering was wrong. That what he had actually brought to God was somehow inferior or off base. Remember that both grain offerings and animal offerings found their way into the sacrificial system. So don't read this and think, well, because Abel brought animals and Cain brought produce, that somehow there's an inherent difference between the two. Cain and Abel were both bringing sacrifices of their vocation. So don't be moralistic about this text, as though Cain brought inferior stuff and Abel brought the good stuff. We are not told in Genesis why God had regard for Abel and his offering and not Cain and his offering, but we are told somewhere else. Why is it that God regarded Abel and what he brought, and he did not regard Cain and what he brought? Hebrews 11 and verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. What does he say? He says that the reason his sacrifice was accepted and the reason that he was accepted was faith. The reason that Abel's sacrifice was accepted is the same reason why Abel himself was accepted by God, namely faith. On that basis, God accepted him and what he brought. Now, on the other hand, what do the scriptures say of Cain? Well, in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 12, we read that Cain was of the evil one and murdered his brother. The difference between Cain and Abel was simply this, that Abel trusted the Lord and the promises of God, the word of God, and Cain did not. One believed, one did not. It really is that simple. Let's continue to think about this for just a moment, because this has tremendous implications for us as we think about our lives before God. What is it about us that is acceptable to God? Well, nothing in us. It is faith that makes us acceptable. And more pointedly, it is the object of our faith, namely Jesus, who makes us acceptable before God. By faith, we are connected to the one who is entirely righteous and who is perfectly accepted by his Father. And we are accepted by God on the basis of faith in Christ. Our deeds, our good works that God has already prepared for us to walk in, for which we will be commended at the end of history, are commended by God on the basis of faith in Christ. You see, friends, there are not two kinds of people in this world inherently. As though some are good and some are bad. 
Biblically speaking, there are only bad people. The question is not whether you are good or bad or acceptable or not. The question is, do you believe God? Do you believe that what he has said is true? Do you believe that what he has revealed concerning his son is true? The only dividing line between people in this world is faith in Christ alone. Now in considering this, where we can often go that we ought not go is we try to quantify faith. You tell me, brother, that the only difference between bad people and bad people is faith in Christ. Yes, but well, how much faith? That's not the question, how much. Biblically speaking, any faith is a gift of God. The question is not how strong is your faith. No, the question is who do you trust? Christ or something else? The question is who is the object of your faith? Because it is the object of of our faith that saves us, not the quality or the strength or the purity of our faith because that ebbs and flows by the hour. So saints, as you pray for faith and as you struggle for faith, take heart that the testimony of the redeemed of all time is, I believe and help my unbelief. Continuing to think about this and acceptability before God. If it is only by faith in Christ that we are accepted by him, what does that mean for our worship? Because not only do we see that Abel was accepted by God, Abel's offering was. Not only do we see that Cain was not accepted by God, but Cain's offering was not. What is it that makes worship acceptable? Well, false or unacceptable worship is the kind that thinks we have something to bring God that he will accept because of what we're bringing. False worship is also the kind that thinks that we have something to bring to God that he will accept because of who we are. But true worship that is acceptable before God is the kind that understands several things. That when we come into his presence, we come to be received by him on the basis of Christ alone. That when we come into the presence of God, God will bless us and will minister to us on the basis of Christ alone and our faith in him. True worship understands that God will meet us in our need on the basis of Christ alone and our faith in him. True and acceptable worship understands that God will then receive back from us prayer and praise and thanksgiving and song because we approach him through faith in his son. In other words, boil it down, false, unacceptable worship has us at the center. Something about us. What we're doing, who we are, the quality of those things, that's false worship. True, acceptable worship has only one thing at the center, and his name is Jesus. It's very simple. It has always been about faith from the very beginning. 
is quite clear. Let's put our eyes now on verses 6 and 7 of Genesis chapter 4. So this whole bit about the sacrifices has occurred. God has accepted Abel and his offering. He has had no regard for Cain and for his. And so Cain is angry and his face falls. In verse 6, the Lord asks Cain a question. Now, as is always the case when God does this, he is not seeking information. What he's doing is seeking restoration of relationship with his creature. He asks, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? In verse 7, he goes on, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Now this again, brothers and sisters, must be understood in reference to faith. To belief in what God has said. If Cain were to trust God, if Cain were to bring sacrifices in faith, would he not be accepted? On the flip side though, if Cain does not do well, if he does not do good, the Lord says that sin is like a beast crouching at the door ready to devour And then God says that Cain must rule over sin. It's a strong word, is it not? You must rule over sin. It's a good command. And it is impossible for Cain to do. It's impossible for any fallen human to do. Rule over sin. Remember, brothers and sisters, that all throughout this book, God makes commands that we cannot keep. He makes demands on us that we cannot keep. We can't do it. His commands and His law, remember this always, in their first and greatest use, are meant to show us our utter inability to do what God requires on our own. And they are meant to drive us toward the one who can keep it for us. Even here, In what God is saying, the Lord means to drive Cain to faith. To drive Cain outside of himself and to believe God, to trust God's word, because this is Cain's only hope. Cain can't work his way back to God any more than we can. For Cain, it is God alone who can protect him from sin's power, and so too for us. Only Christ can protect us from the power and the dominion of sin. But sadly, Cain does not respond in faith. We see that immediately in the next verse. Put your eyes on verse 8. In this verse, the first murder is recorded in the Scriptures. Now, I think in reading like Genesis 1, 2, 3, and then 4, we should be struck by the almost instantaneous effect of sin on humanity. In the chapter immediately after Adam and Eve fall into sin, we have one brother killing another brother. It's not as though it took time for humanity to just sink further and further and further and further down into sin. And then finally, eventually, humans would be capable of really extraordinary evil. No. It happens at once. Notice, too, the hardening effect of sin. This is like frightening in how it affects us. Look at the way in verse 9 that Cain reacts to his own killing of his own brother. 
Verse 9, the Lord says to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? Again, he's not seeking information. Cain responds, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? He excuses himself, obviously. But the hardness of heart is what's harrowing. He has no regard for his own brother. It's as though he says, why? Lord says, where's your brother? Why? What does that matter to me? Am I responsible to watch over and to love my brother? Well, actually, yes. Yes, you are responsible for that. Beloved, consider not only the wickedness, but the hardness of sin. It's so bad that we can actually or practically kill another person and come away from that with the attitude, well, what is that to me? What does that matter to me? It's how far we've fallen. Put your eyes on verse 10. This is a very significant verse for multiple reasons. The Lord, again, is going to speak to Cain. He says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now this verse is significant, first of all, because we see God's concern for justice. We, now look, we live in a fallen world where injustice occurs all the time. You all know it, I know it. Look at Twitter, look at Facebook, it's everywhere. Sometimes injustice occurs at a societal level. Sometimes injustice occurs at an individual level. Regardless of the situation, though, we all have justice meters that are going off all the time, do we not? Well, in all of this, as you wrestle and weep over the injustice that you see happening to others, or as you wrestle and struggle with the injustice that you are inflicted with. Remember, and take comfort in the fact that your God is perfectly just. And he is all-knowing. He knows and he sees everything. And while your sense of justice and my sense of justice are flawed at best, his justice is not flawed at all. When injustice occurs, no matter how obscure, no matter how quietly God sees, an injustice rises into the presence of God to demand vengeance. Your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. The Lord says of himself that vengeance belongs to me and I will repay. He says that in Deuteronomy 32. The Apostle Paul cites that in Romans 12. He is also the one who says, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That's who he is. But that's not all that we should see in this verse. It's not even the most important thing to see. Perhaps the most important thing to see in this verse is that God has regard for blood. Because in blood there is life. 
and it speaks, blood does, a word that God hears and responds to. And if that's true of every human being, how much more so when it comes to the blood of His only Son? As the writer to the Hebrews says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What is that word? Mercy. Forgiveness. Righteousness to sinners. It's a wonderful word that the blood of Christ speaks. And we will come back to that later on in our time together. Very quickly in verses 11 and 12, we see that God curses Cain for what he's done. In verses 13 and 14, Cain acknowledges at least his fear and dread of the punishment that God has pronounced on him. And then in verse 15, God is just, amen, and God is also merciful. He shows Cain mercy. He gives him his word and he gives him a sign that he, God, will protect Cain. So that was all under number one. That was one of the longer sections. Point two is the continuation of the two lines. The continuation of the two lines. By the two lines, I mean the line according to the promise and the line of the serpent. The line of promise and the line of the serpent. We're going to be looking at verses 17 to 26 of chapter 4 just very briefly. In verses 17 to 24, excuse me, we're going to look at 17 to 26. 17 to 24 first, we learn of the descendants of Cain. So Cain knows his wife in verse 17 and starts having offspring. We learn of his offspring several generations in, all the way to a man named Lamech. Now, the descendants of Cain, it can be noted, they develop various arts and technologies, and I think it's worth observing that because we can see even there God's common grace. This is the seed of the serpent, the seed not according to promise. This is Cain's line, and yet we see art and technology and the like being developed. Such is common grace. The Lord has always shown it to people. It has always been a thing. But the most important thing for us to observe is how Lamech is the epitome of the line of Cain. Where does this line of wickedness, where does this line of the serpent go? Where does it lead? Let's look at verses 23 and 24 as Lamech himself speaks. He says to his two wives, Ida and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, which God had pronounced, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Where does sin go? Where does this line of Cain go? It goes to polygamy. It's the first to take multiple wives recorded in the scripture. It goes to murderousness. And it goes to mercilessness. We see that all encapsulated in Lamech, who is the epitome of the line of Cain. But then in verses 25 and 26, we're going to consider again the continuation of the line according to the promise. 
In verses 25 and 6, Adam and Eve conceive again and give birth, Eve does, to another son. And his name is Seth. In Eve's mind, this is God's kindness to give her another son since Abel was killed. And Seth now rises up in Abel's place and will continue the line of people of faith. We see that clearly even in verse 26. Lamech, again, polygamy, murder, mercilessness, verse 26, during the time of Seth, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So again, we have these two lines flowing from Adam and Eve and their offspring. Point number three. We're going to consider now from the entirety of chapter five, the genealogy of the line of the promise. The genealogy of the line of the promise. Now, I don't know, when I was reading this earlier from chapter five, I don't know how many people were tracking. I don't know how many people checked out. Some of you might have been wondering, I wonder what, wonder what the brother's going to do with the genealogy here in chapter 5. This genealogy is the line of the seed of the woman from Adam to Noah. But I want to begin with some observations about genealogies generally. So in a genealogy, in any one, but especially this one, the way that it's worded, there is a message of law in it, a message of law and justice in it. What I mean is all the people in this genealogy save one die. That refrain, he lived this many years and he died, just happens over and over and over and over again. And that's what men deserve as lawbreakers. But that is not the main thing that we should see. When it comes to genealogies in the Bible, I trust that what they maybe are most known for in our day is tripping up people in their Bible reading plans. People are doing really well and then they come to a genealogy in Genesis 5, and they're like, oh, I'm just going to kind of skim over that and get back to the good stuff in Genesis 6. And then they make it all the way perhaps to numbers. And then we start getting genealogies and census data and all these things. And people are like, what do we do with this? Genealogies to us seem superfluous sometimes. They seem almost like we would never say this because it's impious, but it's almost like, is this really a good use of space in the Scripture? We say that, brothers and sisters, because we have never been taught well what to do with them. We've never honestly been told why they're there. You see, genealogies, every single one of them in the Scripture, preach a message about Jesus. Track with me for a minute. Genealogies are in the Bible because of Jesus. When it comes to genealogies, we should look at them all through this lens. Remember the promise of Genesis 3.15. Remember how we have considered at multiple points that that promise of a redeemer who's going to come is what the rest of the scripture is about from Genesis 3.15 onward. So as we make our way through the Old Testament, when we get genealogies like this, we are being told more and more about that promised seed. We are being told more and more about the Christ and the redeemer who's going to come. We learn here that he comes from the line of Seth on through Noah. We will learn that he's going to be a son of Abraham. We will learn that he's going to then be a son of Judah. We will learn that he is then going to be a son of David. And we learn all of these things through genealogies that are recorded for us in the Bible. And this is why, friends, there are genealogies in the New Testament. The very first words of our New Testament are what? 
a genealogy in Matthew's gospel. He traces Jesus back to Abraham. Luke, in his gospel, has a genealogy that traces Jesus back to Adam. Those are instructive to us as to how we should read every genealogy that's in the book. You see, the Old Testament, friends, has its own ways of preaching the gospel. And genealogies are one of those ways. The New Testament and the Old Testament preach the gospel differently. We understand that. That the Old Testament preaches the gospel largely through types and shadows and pointers to the one who will come to save us. And then in the New Testament, we have the revelation of the life and times of Christ, according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then we have the explanation of what Christ came to accomplish in full from the apostles. But in the Old Testament, there is gospel everywhere and Genealogies are one of the ways that the Old Testament preaches the message of Christ. Now, let's zero in on a few people in particular as we think about this genealogy with respect to redemption. First, let's look at Seth very briefly. Look at chapter 5 and verse 3. We see there that after God has made man in his own image, that Adam then bears a son, fathers a son in his own likeness after his image and names him Seth. So Seth is bearing the image of God through his father, that's true, and he also bears the image of a fallen man. So do all of the people in this chapter, so do all of the people who come after by means of natural procreation. That will matter. Paul will use language in 1 Corinthians 15, we have all borne the image of the man of dust, but we will all bear the image of the man of heaven, meaning Jesus. Now let's consider Noah for just a moment. Noah is the 10th generation from Adam. Later in Genesis, we're going to see that there are 10 generations from Noah to Abraham. None of this is accidental. The way that Lamech names Noah is significant. Put your eyes on verse 29 of chapter 5. Lamech gives birth, or fathers a son. His wife gives birth. But Lamech fathers a son at 182 years of age and calls his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground the Lord has cursed this one shall bring us relief. Noah's name means relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief, Lamech says. People were looking for a child to be born who would undo the curse. While Noah is not that child, we will see in the coming weeks how Noah is going to be a kind of new Adam as God, in a sense, starts over after but now let's consider Enoch. Let's consider Enoch from verses 21 to 24 of Genesis 5. Listen to these words again. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years, and he died. Actually, no, those words are not there. These words. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. As Martin Luther has said, these verses should be written in letters of gold. Why? It's because Enoch preached a better life than this one. Enoch's life preaches of the life that is to come and of the life that is centered around the promised Redeemer. It is not an overstatement to say that Enoch is the most significant story of the world between Adam and the flood. He was taken out of this world by God without experiencing physical death. 
The only other person that this happens to in the Old Testament is Elijah in 2 Kings 2. So Enoch is taken into heaven. Friends, this is a foreshadowing of what we're going to hear a lot about later on in the scriptures, namely the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. It's a pretty cool observation, I think, that in the pre-flood world, we have a testimony to resurrection and everlasting life in Enoch. Between the flood and Jesus, we have that same testimony to resurrection and eternal life in Elijah. And then, of course, we have the preeminent testimony to the resurrection of the body and life everlasting in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is our hope. God intends us to have a life beyond this one. He's making that very clear from the beginning of his word. He intends us to have a life that is imperishable, that is beyond death itself. And may he give us faith that we would believe those promises. One last thing regarding Enoch before we move on. Many times, people have been taught about Enoch in a way that is somewhat moralistic as well. You'll hear things like this. Live a godly life, and God will spare you from pain like he did Enoch. Live a godly life, and God will reward you with eternal life like he did Enoch. But consider again the writer to the Hebrews. Hebrews 11, verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Now how did he do that? How did he please God? Hebrews eleven six, And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. In other words, brothers and sisters, Enoch lived a life of faith. And God did a work for him that preaches to us about the resurrection and the eternal life that await every one of us who trust in Christ. All that by way of point number three, we now move on to number Number four, the triumph of sin on earth. We're going to be looking at Genesis 6, 1 to 8. The triumph of sin on earth. In chapter 6 and verse 1, we see that humanity is multiplying on the earth. In verse 2, we read this language, that sons of God were marrying the daughters of man. Now, along with many through church history, I understand this to mean a mixing of the two lines. A mixing of the line of the promise, those who believed God, and then the line who did not believe God, who were of the serpent. The sons of God were of the line of the promise, the daughters of man were of the line of the serpent, and there was indiscriminate marriage on the part of people of faith with people who did not believe God. This was something that brought a lot of wreckage and ruin in this time, and if you read the rest of the Old Testament, we will see that whenever God's people do this, it always bears really bad fruit. This is about idolatry more than anything else. In verse 3, the Lord determines that judgment is coming. In particular, it's coming in 120 years. So when we read that verse, 
God says, my spirit shall not abide in, it could be rendered contend with man forever. His days shall be 120 years. I understand that and I'm suggesting to us that that means 120 years until the flood is coming. Sometimes you hear people render this and say that God is now limiting human lifespan to 120 years. The issue with that is that in Genesis chapter 11, there are people living longer than 120 years. So I think the most straightforward way to understand this is that God is saying there's 120 years of his kindness that is meant to lead men to repentance. Then in verse 4, ah, we get to the Nephilim. In verse 4, we read that there were Nephilim on the earth at this time. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because it is not remotely the point of the text. In terms of the Nephilim, this race of people was clearly not the product of the mixed marriages of verses 1 and 2. Why do I say that? Look at what the verse says. Verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children. The Nephilim are already there. We know from Numbers 13 that the Nephilim were people of large stature. In the presence of large people, just to state it plainly, should not alarm us. They show up at other points in the scripture. Exhibit A, Goliath. This is pretty straightforward in what it is revealing. The presence of the Nephilim along with the mighty men, the warriors that were born to the sons of God and the daughters of man all contribute to this environment of violence that existed at this time. Now, if all of this stuff like on the Nephilim and all that is of tremendous interest to you or it trips you up in any way, that's something I would be delighted to talk with you with about after the service, be at the back door, we can chop it up. Come see me. Let's put our eyes back now on verse 5 as we continue to think about the major emphasis of this section of Genesis. Verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is a wonderful description of the extent of the fallenness and the wickedness of mankind. This is not a description of people before the flood as though people after the flood are not this bad. Because perhaps one might read it that way. That, well, humanity got so bad that God determined to send the flood and kind of started over and it got better. Biblically speaking, that is not true. Nothing has changed about human beings. In Genesis 8 and verse 21, for example, Noah offers a pleasing sacrifice to the Lord and the Lord says in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. God acknowledges that the intent of man's heart is evil, just like before. And on top of that, there is the witness of the prophets and the Psalms and the apostles. Read Romans 3, 9 through 18. Nothing changed in terms of the nature of mankind from Genesis 6, 5 to now. Apart from God's restraining grace, friends, chapter 6 and verse 5 is what we are. Such is our nature. Now, this is hard for us. We don't like to think of ourselves in this way. But this is how far from God we are apart from Christ and apart from grace. So we need to own this, that this is our nature. That in our fallen humanity, the intention and the thoughts of our hearts, our desires, all of those things are evil. The biggest hindrances, again, 
God's grace is sovereign. Amen. Praise be to his name. At a human level, the biggest hindrances to people coming to faith in Christ are what? I would suggest our notions of our own goodness. I don't need him. There's a reason why Pharisees and rich young rulers don't come to Christ and tax collectors and prostitutes do. Because the latter understands their need. They know that they're wretches. But not only is our or are our thoughts of our own goodness the greatest hindrance to people coming to faith in Christ at a human level, the biggest dangers to us in the Christian life are those same notions of our own goodness. So for example, why is it that we get angry when sin is confronted? Let's just assume it's confronted well, right? If somebody confronts my sin, why is my instinct to immediately become angry? Part of it is, yes, I like my sin sometimes. But underneath that, where does the anger come from? It comes from the fact that deep down, I think that my actions and my feelings are justifiable. When we're confronted, we get angry because we are convinced deep down that we have every right to do what we're doing and we have every right to feel what we're feeling. We're not that bad. It's how we are. We're offended because we think that somebody is saying something about us. They're telling us they're not as, that we are not as good as we think we are and we're angry about that. In verses 6 and 7, let's keep thinking about this for a moment. The Lord is going to communicate some things about himself in terms of how he thinks about sin and how he feels about it. The Lord, we see, was grieved by the sinfulness of man. And he determined that he would wipe mankind out along with the animals because of man. And the Lord even goes so far as to say that he is sorry that he has made man in the first place. Now on this for just a moment. Is God sorry that he made man in the first place because he didn't know what would happen? Some people suggest that, but it won't hold biblically. Is God sorry that he made man in the first place because maybe he knew what would happen, but then things got outside of his control? Some people suggest that. But that won't hold biblically either. While this whole thing of God being sorry is above us, we are on the right track when we remember three things. Just give them to you one at a time. One, God is a person. He's not a force. So he cares about things. He thinks and he feels. That's important to remember. Number two, God is sovereign and transcends time. Yet, he interacts meaningfully with his creatures in time and space. Third, God, in revealing himself to us, accommodates himself to our capacity. In conveying how he feels about sin and its effects in us, in other words, he uses language we can understand. Put your eyes on verse 8. We finally, after a number of verses of just really horrible stuff, we have a divine ray of grace break through the clouds. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He found grace 
in the eyes of the Lord. What wonderful words in the aftermath, in particular of verses 5 to 7. Noah will be an instrument through which God will save humanity and animals from complete destruction. We're going to be thinking about that next week. Herein, though, friends, is the beauty of the gospel, that despite our wickedness, God gives grace. And so now as we conclude, let's think for a few moments together, tying in particular chapter 4 and verse 10, that God has regard for blood and that Christ's blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Let's connect that to the depth of our sin and the depth of our need. So we must start along the lines of verse 5, verse 6, verse 7, by acknowledging that our sin is great, that we are all far worse than we think. Now, we like to give lip service to that kind of language. Oh, we're all, you know, so much worse than we think. And How are you doing today? Well, I'm doing so much better than I deserve. And we talk in these ways. But it's very clear that at points we struggle to really see and really know and really own how sinful we are. Think of your week this week. I'm thinking of mine. I thought about my week as I was working in this. Have you wanted something, like craved something that wasn't yours this week? Have you really wanted something that somebody else has that you don't have? Have you been envious of somebody else's situation, somebody else's circumstance? Have you gotten angry? And then have you asked yourself the question, does any of my anger have anything to do with the kingdom of God? Have you loved your neighbor as yourself? Or have you been selfish? Have you loved God with all your heart every moment? I certainly have not. Not even close. Every single thing that I've just described, I have, I have failed in this week. Now, many of us, as we come here this morning, are painfully aware of the sin in our lives. We're burdened by it. We're grieved by it. Some of us are discouraged not only at the state of our lives, we're discouraged at the state of our hearts. We feel cold and lifeless, maybe. Maybe you're there this morning. Well, for those who may be in that place, here is the beauty of the gospel, friends. That in the face of the depth of your sin, and in the face of your coldness of heart, and your lifelessness, you've shown up to church this morning, and the thing that you need to hear is this. That because of Christ and His blood shed for you, you are forgiven. And God on the basis of Christ and His shed blood, has declared over you that you're righteous. And then we respond to that, and we pray for faith to believe it, and then we praise God for it. That this is what He has said to us. When it comes to you, brothers and sisters, and you're standing before God, and your peace with Him, the blood of the Son of God is sufficient. View him prostrate in the garden. On the ground, your maker lies. On the bloody tree, behold him. Sinner, will this not suffice? 
Yes. Yes, it will. The blood of Christ that speaks a better word than that of Abel cries out, it is finished. Christ, on the basis of his shed blood, speaks a word to us. A word that says, I made a single sacrifice for sins. Your sins. And then I sat down because I've accomplished your salvation. Christ, on the basis of his shed blood, speaks a word to us that says, by a single offering, I have perfected you for all time, even as you're being sanctified. He speaks a word to us that says, I will remember your sins and your lawless deeds no more. Christ speaks a word to us on the basis of his blood that says nothing will separate you from the love of God because of me. He speaks a word that says I have you in my hands and nobody will ever take you out. He speaks a word that says I desire that you would be with me to behold my glory that my Father gave me before the foundation of the world. I want you with me. He speaks a word to us that says, I have gone to prepare a place for you, and I will come for you, and I will bring you there. He speaks a word to us on the basis of his blood. I am able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through me because I always live to make intercession for those who trust in me. He speaks on the basis of his blood a word that says, you, dear one, have been united to me. And I have saved you. Now, go. Father, give us faith. When we hear words like that, they're sometimes hard to believe because we know that we're sinners. We wrestle so much in our own hearts and minds with thinking that we have to do enough or be good enough. We know in our sane moments that we can't be. So we pray that you would give us faith in Christ, that you would take these words that he has spoken on the basis of what he has done Drive them into our minds and hearts and give us peace this morning. As we consider the wreckage of the world that has always been since the fall and the wreckage of the world that we live in, lift our eyes from this horizon and give us hope in your Son. Remind us of the life to come that is beyond this world. We pray that you would continue to nourish and sustain our faith even as we come to your table Minister to us, we pray in Jesus' name.